Well, hi, welcome to Zero Ambitions. We're joined today by Rufus Grantham of Bankers Without Boundaries to talk about retrofit and how we can finance some of that retrofit. So welcome, Rufus. Um, can you start by maybe giving us a bit of background about yourself and also who Bankers Without Boundaries are and the work that you've been doing? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, thank you for the, the invite to, to talk. Um, so BWB is a, we're not for profit, we're a group of uh, all sorts of different types of, of ex-banker. So we've got asset managers, corporate financiers, debt people, equity people, structurers. Um, and we work on a really eclectic range of projects that have environmental or socially positive outcomes. So it's not just retrofit, it's not just climate. Uh, we do a lot of nature-based um, stuff uh, and it's sovereign debt issuance down to um, working on decarbonizing trucking, looking at housing, cities, um, philanthropic bonds, all sorts of stuff. Um, typically, we are trying where we can as to how to link, often these are public sector-owned problems of some sort or another, and how can we bring in institutional capital or funding. So it's kind of moving from a lot of the work we do is moving from grant mindset to investment mindset and how to move capital. And, and my background, I guess, pretty typical of uh, the senior people at BWB. I've been 25 years in mainstream finance at a bunch of different banks, mainly focused on equity markets, talking to pension funds, um, advising on investment strategies, that kind of stuff. So I think one of the reasons, um, Rufus, we, you, I think you sent me a paper, gosh, might even be as much as, as a year ago, and I, and I instantly thought, wow, that's that's really interesting because I think we're talking specifically just now uh, about retrofit and what we need to do to decarbonise our homes. I should say we're coming off the back of COP four or five weeks ago, and I think part of the or the focus of of, of this podcast mainly is around climate change, the built environment of which housing obviously is, is, is part of. And the paper that you had, had put, I think it was called Green Green Neighbourhoods as a Service, I thought yep. was particularly interesting because something you just picked up there is a public sector problem, but how we use private finance. And I think it's worthwhile maybe getting your opinion. What we have to do in terms of decarbonisation in our homes, will government support that through grants and loans? Do you think that's something that either Westminster or Holyrood or the devolved nations will finance themselves to ordinary consumers? Well, if we don't, we won't get to net zero. So ultimately, yes, I think. Uh, so so we uh, let me roll back a little bit. We've done quite a lot of work over the last couple of years with a whole group of cities across Europe. We were part of a climate kick funded project called um, Healthy Clean Cities. And so we're looking at how do cities get to net zero, full stop. Uh, and these are all cities. Edinburgh was one of the cities, um, have made pledges to hit net zero. And then are thinking, right, how, how, how the hell do we do this? How do, how do we get there? So we're looking across mobility, green infrastructure, retrofit, um, energy generation, the whole, the whole piece. We are not technical experts in any of that. We are financiers. And what we tend to look at is a problem here, which is all of these problems, you've got to spend a lot of money up front and then you get decades of benefit. Um, and those benefits have monetary value. They could be sort of cash-like, things like energy savings, or they could be co-benefit, call it, you know, things like healthcare, biodiversity, those, those sort of things which are clear value. You can put economic value, although it's a bit tricky, but they're often not included in, in the problem. When you 
do that analysis, I think you can make a pretty strong argument that that transitioning to a net zero economy is a positive economic event. It's something we should be doing for economic generation. For if you take into account the job creation, the reduction on cost um, on the healthcare system for a healthier population, given particularly some of the impacts of poor housing, plus the energy savings, etc. Et you, you can make an argument there's a positive return. The problem is that um, often the person spending the money doesn't get the return. So we need to we need somehow to fund this. So presumably, um, I, I'm really interested in this. And Rufus, we've spoke, spoken before, actually. I think we connected over, um, so another hat that I wear with ACAN, um, yeah. we connected over the Households Declare campaign that we um, released. And we had a discussion and I was really interested as well in the paper that I read the same article that you'd written about green neighbourhoods. Um, and it's really interesting hearing that you've worked at scale with this idea with other cities and um and we're talking about like the mechanism of how this might work but that's where i'm really interested now is like what is the story then what is the story that this that we can run with to get this idea picked up at scale because i think a lot of our listeners will be involved and be keen to be decarbonizing our housing stock and involved in any which way that they can be. But we, time and again, come back to the issue of, well, what's the story? Because we all know that like, behind this, this makes really, really great sense. So how can we, seeing the help, seeing the work that you've put into this and it being convincing, like how can we help like push that idea and replicate that idea? What should we be talking about? Um. I think we need to, to, I'm increasingly to the point we need to be doing this rather than talking about it. Um, we're talking with Bayes um, via, so we, we, we've wrote a report partnership with an organisation called Unomia in the summer for um, the UK City's Climate Investment Commission. And that was that's a grouping of connected places, catapult, core cities, uh, so 11 big cities outside of London and London councils. So there are 44 local authorities that sit behind that. That was published October 21st and, and rolled out at, at COP. And that called for this, uh, basically a, a version of that green neighbourhoods model. Um, I'm going to talk a bit about why we came to that conclusion of how to do it, because it's quite a different way of tackling or approaching this problem from the sort of received wisdom globally, which is use policy and subsidy. That's that's the standard approach. And we know it doesn't work. And so we, we've kind of come from a first principle perspective to a, a completely different model of doing it. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that. But that's all That's all in the report. As part of that, we are have been talking with Bayes. We've been also talking about to the Scottish government. I'm trying to get an in, intro to the devolved Welsh government um, about how do we fund a demonstrator to do this. And what we're talking about is a very holistic, very systemic transformation of place, multiple domains and uh, uh, multiple residences in the same place. That's going to be bringing not just a building piece around retrofit, but it's also going to be thinking about energy systems, thinking about mobility options, thinking about green infrastructure, community assets. It's a really complex thing to do. You need funding to do that. And I think one of the challenges well, I, I could list 15 or 20 local authorities in the UK and another dozen in Europe that would do this now if the funding was there. The problem is they don't have the headcount, they don't have the cost, the, the people to actually put it in place. And that that technical assistance funding, I think, is cr critical. And that's something that we are talking to Bayes about. And to be fair, 
they are listening and it looks like there may be some funding flowing is probably what I can say at this this stage, but it looks like there may be steps towards doing that. I think that's exactly it there, that when we talk about funding as a question, it's like, okay, well, what exactly for? So I've got a couple of, you know, trillion kicking around here and I'll give it to you. Where is it going? And that is really interesting to hear about that, about it's got to go into the people who can deliver this because it is a multifaceted thing that we're talking about, I suppose. Jeff, you had a point. No, it's just, it's fascinating stuff. And I just wonder, I mean, you know, we've, we've operated uh, as a publisher in the space for the last, for well, best part of a couple of decades. Um, it's felt like for a long time, uh, the banking sector, the finance world has been uh, guilty of the, of the most uh, cynical or, or, or surface level kind of uh, greenwashing in this space to, you know, like it's the, it's the pamphlets on, on, uh, on our wonderful CSR initiatives that you see in a bank or something like that, you know, um, and there has been some progress, don't get me wrong, uh, in particular on large scale renewables projects and stuff like that. But, um, but um, it just feels like uh, I don't want to, I've been let down so many times in the past that uh, that I don't want to get my hopes up too much, you know. Um, don't worry, but, Rufus uh, isn't going to let you down too much. He's <laughs> <good luck>. He's <laughs> no, but there's a sense of optimism now um, that uh, that things might actually be changing. And I'm fascinated by the point you make about, you know, around policy and, and incentives not working. In other, in other words, it's like there's an implicit message within the thinking beforehand that we need to prop this stuff up because it doesn't make sense to do. You know, um, you wouldn't otherwise do it. But now you're trying to come, out, trying to engineer the, the circumstances, and maybe, maybe, maybe you are of the opinion that 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 we we have the situation. Leaving aside the fact that the world's you know on fire, um, where this stuff actually you can make it stack up. There are ways to engineer the circumstances to make it stack up. It, yeah, yes, ish. I mean, the the problem the problem is is that, and and this is where you know I'm not I'm not a technical person. I, I put a, a post out on LinkedIn. A couple of weeks back, and had a had a crazy response to it. But a, a, one of the key points that people people made, which we sort of expected, was your cost per per building are way too low. So, from a finance perspective, I guess what we're saying is, at the moment, the view is that either the taxpayer will subsidise this, and at the moment that is working through really fragmented, technical focused subsidies rather than anything holistic, or people. Asset owners will go, actually, this is a great idea. I'm going to invest 20, 30, 40, 50 grand in my property because I'm going to get an energy saving. And the problem is that if you're just looking at the energy savings, even if you add in a bit for, for you know not having to maintain your boiler or, and that sort of stuff, the numbers just don't add up. If you look at the climate change committee numbers, they talk about, I mean, this this is, you know, we, we suggested 25,000 pounds per home and got shouted down that it should be double. The, the sixth carbon budget talks about £9,000 per property for the UK. And there, there's some stuff you can unpack in that. It's not as stark as it first appears to deliver a 16% energy bill saving. 16% energy bill off, you know, let's forget about the fact energy bills are going through the roof, but on existing historic energy bills, that's 200 quid a year. So you've got to, you've got to live in that property for 45 years just to get your capital back, no return. So the financial incentive there is is terrible. There's no way you're going to do, use it because you're probably not going to be in the house for 45 years anyway. You might not be alive for 45 years, you know, average homeowner. And then you could go, okay, but a sixth of the UK population live in social housing. A sixth live in private rental. So we're only talking about two thirds of the problem that is owner occupiers. 
and a third of that, two thirds are over 65, they can't borrow mortgage money anyway. Mm-hmm. So you're now talking about two thirds of two thirds. And within that, you've got, um, yes, you do have some middle class, wealthier homeowners who've got 40% equity and could go and raise the mortgage money to do this. But you've also got people who bought on the right to buy scheme who have no credit rating. You've got people who've just bought and have 95% loan to value and comp. So actually that kind of, this idea of the the sort of middle classes with equity in their property who can self-fund, yeah, great. That is a bit of the market, but it's only a very small bit of the market. And the economics, if you're just thinking about the energy bill, don't stack up by a million miles. So unless you can find a way to... Um, to create better economies, create different incentives to do it rather than just energy saving, which is why one of the reasons we came to this whole neighbourhood idea, um, and find ways to include the value of the other stuff that happens. You know, I think there's there's an often quoted thing that if every 10 billion you spend on building retrofit, that the NHS budget can drop by 1.4 billion because you're saving all, all sorts of stuff through damp and cold and all the rest of it. Well, we don't, other than as a sort of soft incentive for government to to bother with this, we don't in any way capture that. Um, and there, there are lots of different pieces like that that flow that could be captured. So I think it can make sense if you holistically take everything into account, but it's really hard to do. And it's incredibly hard to do if you're pushing the responsibility down to the individual homeowner. And that's before you get into the different dynamics of social housing, the different dynamics of private rental, um, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I think I think that's really interesting because we've we've talked about this before, and and what you're saying, completely agree with. How how do we? In fact, we've had this chat, whether it's been on air or or privately. How are we classing cost and value for the works that we're doing? And I completely agree. I think that if you look at it from an owner occupier perspective, long term payback is very difficult. But how you talked about co benefits, we spoke about co benefits earlier on. Jeff's, Jeff's TED Talks was excellent because, you know, I think what we need to move away from is, is talking specifically about, well, my retrofit's more expensive than your retrofit in terms of, well, here's what my retrofit does. You know, mm. it's about comfort. Yeah, it's about health. It's about air quality. And I think taking that further, what I like about your approach was, and this is a, a, a failing or a fault from an asset manager's perspective is often we just look at the, the house, we just look at the, the cartilage of that dwelling. We, we don't care about the public spaces in between. And what I liked about your approach was it was a holistic, not just from those benefits, but also looking at neighbourhoods as a whole. And that's something I think I, guys like me don't often do. I, I, I don't think we should be using the word retrofit at all. Yeah, that's I, I another think, point we can agree yeah. with you on. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's, it's, it's, it's such a... It's immediately taking the conversation down a technical route. Um, the reality is that the places that people live, the places that communities exist in, have for various different reasons, without getting political, have been underinvested for for a long period of time, and require a whole bunch of different system changes to enable living in a way with 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 less carbon. And that's not just about an argument about heat pumps and hydrogen and fabric first, but it's about transport options. It's about how do we think about urban green infrastructure? Um, it's thinking about waste management, it's thinking about energy generation distributed versus centralized. Um, if you took a neighborhood of streets, 500 homes, 
600 homes, 1,000 homes, whatever it might be, you could come up with a plan of how you would transition that space. And I guess one of our thinking points is, if you're going to do that, it's much better to send a, a you know, crack team into that area and do all that stuff in one go at lower marginal cost, be procuring at scale so you're improving bad economics a bit because you, you're buying mass lots of stuff in one go. But you're also able to think more systemically. You're able at a city level to start thinking about individual heat pumps versus mini heat pump grids versus district heating, what makes sense in different places, which individual homeowners are never going to do. You can think about distributed energy systems and you know the asset utilization that you might get on a distributed solar grid across a couple of streets versus individual systems. Um, you can just have a much more systemic approach. And I think the other thing that grows out of that neighborhood narrative is that the benefits to the people living there um, are quite wide ranging and can be cast in a completely different light. So you can talk about local job creation, you can talk about the healthcare benefits, you can talk about the, you know, potentially sort of visually transformational impact of greening previously concreted areas and making them safer, nicer places to, to be and the sort of the physical health, the mental health um, aspects of that. You could, if you were being cynical, chuck in some community bribes. You know, you could create a list of things that a community could look at and go, well, actually, yeah, we would really benefit from a community center. Or we're a predominantly residential area. We've got a lot of um, young adults in flat shares and we've got a real problem with where do we work because we're working in our bedrooms or we've got to, actually there's an there's a unused building down the road. Could we turn that into a co-working space? And those sort of things, I think, could prove more engaging to get sign up for this kind of a program. It's a reinvestment program. And it that's becomes a Trojan horse that you do the retrofit in. So I think this is a really, um, really, this is where it gets really exciting for me because I agree with you that it has to happen at scale and it has to be more about the wider picture. It's not about the bit of insulation on the outside of, of, a, of a house and each individual undertaking those things. It is about that that view and having that, yeah, looking at the systems that need to change as opposed to just those individual um, alterations. And you mentioned, I was going to go somewhere else with the question, but you did mention, so you send in a crack team and they do that and they get on with that. And I actually think you 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 build the crack team from within that community. Yes. It's something that creates yes. that ownership. Much, much better language than I used. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's just sort of like firing, because I'm there's lots of different things. Like we're always talking to all sorts of different organizations and trying to see like who's doing what, how do we bring all this together? How do we get all these minds in the room? How do we pull it together? And I think the biggest powerful thing, and this is where, and I've written down on, um, I do this every time we talk to people on this podcast, I come away with more questions than anything else. But, you know, you're talking about greener neighborhoods and neighborhood to me means community and who's in your community and who, how do you get to know them? And we've seen through the last couple of years and all of the, um, the almost uprising of mutual aid groups and, and people coming together and, and doing things for each other and using the, the collective knowledge that they have of their place. There are skills there. There are skills that are vastly underused and we need to bring all of these different projects together and disseminate them in such a way that it 
throws all those skills out to those communities. And we can do that in formalized ways. So we're doing like, hopefully doing a project with the NEF in the new year about this sort of thing, about pulling together all those resources and then pushing them out into the community with little bits of like, you know, flexible toolkits on how people can start actually seeing this come to pass, be it through um, yeah. campaigning at local government level, or, or is it just through groups coming together and educating themselves around it? And I think that when you create that ownership and you create that open source knowledge share and you start to build trust and you start to build networks that can support each other, it becomes something different. And that brings me back to where you started, which was this systemic change. Like what is, and as Duncan said, you know, these notions we've talked about time and again, what's value, what's cost, what, you know, what should we be talking about? Because we can't use the same language. We can't use the same situational um, descriptors before, as we have done before. It's got to change. What we value has got to change. And we do that by building it on a community level. Yeah, I 100% agree. I'm one of the, what we've, we've worked quite frequently, some of these projects with an organization called Dem- Democratic Society. And that's a lot of what they bring is that whole community wealth building aspect to this, because this can become very circular economically in, in you know, and, and and there are all sorts of benefits. Like I did a, a very back of the envelope um, calculation of if you take what you would spend on a, on a retrofit program and you think about the people that would be employed, the profit that the firms employing them would make, the, the, the kit that would be bought, and you add up the VAT, the income tax, the corporation tax, the national insurance, uh, you would take something like 15 to 20% of the local unemployed but employable population out of unemployment. So you've got a you've got a um, out-of-work benefit saving as well. Something like 25 to 30% of the spend flows back to the government already. So there's there's an immediate well, that's one reason why the government should be subsidizing this, because they get they get a chunk of it back already. Well, I, I guess it's worth just just stepping back on one of the core tenets of what we're suggesting, which is um, which is really important here. What we are talking about doing is not having that community spend any money. So we are magically going to capitalize an organization to, to go in and, and create this crack team, not send in the crack team, um, in the local, local environment um, and do all the work at I'm no cost. At no cost <laughs> to anyone who lives there, right? Fabulous. All right? Magic money tree stuff. What we're then looking to try and do is capture the the cash saving part of the benefits, so particularly the energy savings, but also maintenance savings, as an income stream back into that funding vehicle. So if you live there and your energy bill is twelve hundred quid a year, it will still be twelve hundred quid a year, but the gas component hopefully goes to zero. Your electricity component might go to two, three, four hundred pounds, and then you have a green neighbourhood comfort fee that makes up makes up the rest of it. As an aside. You could use that as a lever to target fuel poverty alleviation subsidy into different communities if you, if you chose to. But um, if you do that and you contract that on a 30, 40 year view, um, and that is uh, it's it's a well-known low credit, you have it on utility bill. So it's it's a very low risk income stream. We think we can sell that income stream to pension funds. And there's two and a half trillion pounds sitting in the UK pension fund industry. There's lots of money there. They really want to be involved in this stuff. And the only route that private finance has at the moment is through green mortgages, which is is, is just a very different thing. So that model, if you do that 
And this is where the argument I was having on or debate we're having on LinkedIn recently is about. It's all about what's the scale of the annual income stream relative to the scale of the upfront spend. Because that annual income stream, you can capitalize, say, okay, I can now, it's a bit like a mortgage. I can borrow this amount of money because I've got this income stream. And how much of the upfront capital does that provide? It doesn't provide 100%. So it doesn't solve the subsidy problem, but it reduces it. And it is bringing in a third form of capital beyond homeowners' bank accounts or borrowing capability and the government. You're bringing in a third source to take part of the pie. Um, so if you're you know, going back to my 25, 30% of the spend goes back to government, if we could, let's say, bring in half of the spend from the pension fund industry, the government, even if the government provided all of the other half, they're going to get half of that back. So suddenly that, that and, and then you, the bit that they are funding, you say, well, okay, let's think about the healthcare benefits. Let's, th let's think about what we could do around biodiversity with the green infrastructure um, and, and bringing the environment agency. Let's think what we could do about accelerating EV adoption in terms of how we roll out um, mobility options in that place. So there's lots of societal benefits that you could justify that spend. But we actually think if you had this kind of orchestrated approach, there's another opportunity that comes out of it, which is to take all of those co-benefits and say, well, is there anyone else who cares about those other than the government? And so one example that's happening quite a lot already is if you plant a bunch of trees in a place, you reduce the amount of water that flows into the water system. And you also have cleaner water flowing into the water system. And that means that the operational and capital costs of the water company go down. So you can knock on the door of the water company and say, well, will you co-fund our tree planting? And they're doing that to their credit across mm -hmm. the country. Um, you could talk to the environment agency about purchasing biodiversity outcomes. One thing we're quite interested in exploring is if you were decarbonizing an entire neighborhood, you can obviously calculate the, the carbon reduction. Could we get that accredited as a carbon credit? And could we then get the local corporate sector to say, well, actually, we'll buy the carbon credits off it. And that, again, provides another form of grant funding into the model. So by doing that and looking at multiple layers, there's a chart in the report that came out in October from, from Connected Places Catapult that we wrote that has all of those slices of different capital um, that could fund that. What we're trying to do is chip away so that the government effectively, which is us, right? The government is our tax money, is having to contribute as little as possible on a net basis once you take into account the, the revenue generation that comes with it. Um, so that it does become fundable without having to ask individual homeowners to, to indebt themselves, which is essentially in, indebtedness is what we're currently working on. And that's not just the UK, that's globally. Amazing. I mean, the only, not sorry, like with this, you know? the only place where we've, I've seen subsidy really work at the moment is Italy, um, where the, the government, national government moved the eco bonus up to a super bonus. And the reason it's working is because the subsidy is 110% of what you spend on your retrofit. <laughs> yeah. Now, brilliant. But if, if, if that works, and I should know off the top of my head how many houses there are in, in Italy, it'll bankrupt Italy. So it's <laughs> obviously not a long-term solution. Well, Germany and the Northern European countries will feel that they'll take other pieces if uh, that'll be that, that's what their their attitude will be based on the last recession anyway. Um, but um, I, it's look, it's it's fascinating stuff. And um, what you're talking about is remarkably rational, and it's kind of 
you know, a world away from the siloed mentality that you normally tend to get in not just in the public sector, but in all walks of life, really, um, where people just stick to their one area. But I'm just wondering, I mean, you know, we're looking at a situation now, for instance, where if you take something like COVID and schools uh, as one example of, of how dysfunctional the decision making can be. Um, we're seeing in Ireland a situation where, first of all, it took an awful long time for the schools to accept that, that it, it might be an airborne uh, the airborne transmission might be an issue. Then when that was finally accepted, there was money uh, uh, given out to schools to put in CO2 monitors to use CO2 as a proxy for COVID transmission risk. Um, and that was, you know, a useful thing to do up to a point, um, although the teachers weren't given probably enough guidance on on uh, on, on actually monitoring that data and, and number crunching it, um, um, what to do if they got out of it. And now finally they're talking about... Um, about putting HEPA filters in and putting funding in to get, but from the start, 21 months ago, they could have taken a more integrated approach um, and put in proper ventilation, you know, in, into buildings um, uh, that was delivering comfort and ventilation at the same time, and you know, and and all these other benefits at the same time. So, you know, it, that's an example, I suppose, of the dysfunction that we see. And then I think I think Rufus, I mentioned to you before when we spoke um, during the last recession uh, in Ireland, um, uh, when we were seeing the construction industry, you know, uh, housing developers going going wallop all over the place, leaving huge amounts of money owed all over the, all over town to to uh, subcontractors and to suppliers that, that that had supplied kit for them. Um, and I, I was uh, seeing this from a publisher's perspective, seeing you know uh, suppliers who who'd sold heat pumps or boilers or whatever, and they couldn't they they they, they couldn't pay for their ads because they'd got you know a few hundred uh, boilers that they hadn't that they, that they weren't going to be getting money for. Um, so I went to uh, the, the the central statistics office in Ireland, and I went they put me onto the Scottish government's uh, macroeconomic modelling team to with with arguments around uh, how if you a retrofit scheme if we put a retrofit scheme in place it wouldn't just be uh that we get you know benefits direct employment employment benefits you get direct indirect and induced benefits you get um employment created indirectly uh you know uh, by other suppliers and 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 by people working for these companies now having cash in their back pocket to spend in the local economy and you 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 get to sort of prop up industries that would otherwise have been in a vicious circle of of damage um, and collapse um and what stunned me was that the statisticians I spoke to, and it was a long time ago, um, uh, explained that their, their models, their, their macroeconomic models could not handle this. They were steady state models. So they assumed that if, if one company went bust, um, demand was constant and therefore uh, somebody else would come in and fill the gap. Now, do you have a sense now that, that there's uh, more of a willingness to accept this more nuanced approach now and more, more of a uh, sophisticated understanding of economics and of the, of, of of the benefits, and that you know, are you getting much traction for these ideas? Um, I, I'm an optimist. Always, I kind of optimism is a choice has sort of been my motto um, throughout life. I think yes. I, I I think the I guess you can kind of rant and rave about this, but if you think about the mechanism of local and national government has been set up essentially to deal with steady state and and you know the the, the mechanism is you, you 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 disperse some money from the center out to local government and the local government sits there and says well we could spend three times this inevitably let's prioritize the things we want to do and okay that new road can wait to next year's decision and, and we'll split our budget for this year and it's entirely funding driven 
I was speaking to a, a London borough recently who had done a ton of work around retrofitting their owned owned their owned social housing, their own owned social housing. And um I, I won't I won't name name the area, but a, a lot of the work, a tiny portion of the budget was on solar battery. And the thinking was, well, we're going to need to find funding to do this. It's a lot, it's hundreds of millions to do this work. We need to minimize the budget in order to have a better chance of filling that gap and spending money. If you look at it from a from a funding perspective, the one bit of doing a fully holistic retrofit that actually pays back is the solar battery bit. You know, you can you can deliver a 10, 15% reduction in energy bill without that. If you add it on for an extra five, six, seven thousand per property, you might be able to deliver a 50, 60% net energy bill reduction and, and suddenly the economics change. And so you know, that returns thinking just isn't in the mindset because it never it hasn't had to be. As a, as a local government, you don't think about well, what's the return payback period of this period because you're not getting a return. That's just not this problem that we're trying to deal with is so much bigger. You know, to 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 decarbonize housing in the UK is you know, rounding error is a trillion quid. Mm. It, it, it's it's far more money than we can do through grant funding. At the speed we have to do it, so it's, you have to change the mindset. It's true, but Duncan specifically, like I thought, was really fascinating. Your breakdown about um, reactive repair budget and just understanding where money might be. Did yeah. I, I know you had a point about something? Yeah, I, no, I've I've had loads of points. I've been very well behaved, and and and, <laughs> and, and I, I must admit, a word every, in. <laughs> I know every time every time I speak to Rufus, I get really excited because I think, as Jeff said earlier on, it. The ability to look at things that, that people like Rufus are doing is holistically and across, you know, outside of that silo mentality is really refreshing and really quite quite inspiring. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think again, those core benefits. Now in Scotland here, we did a piece of work um, that quite clearly shows that the social housing sector in Scotland, which is about 25% of, of, uh, of homes in Scotland, it's about two and a half million homes, um, spends half a billion pounds every decade on rockworks. Now, rockworks are essentially work that, that, that if you had healthier, warmer buildings wouldn't occur. So, you know, these benefits are, are, are of course, health-related, but they're also about the landlord not having to spend money on essentially houses that are, that are poor-performing. But I just wanted to touch on something as, as, as well, Sarah, because um, as a lo- two, two things, really. As a local authority, I was still one foot in the local authority camp, but as a, a local authority, we come to, when we do big programmes, we completely exclude uh, households who are privately owned from those programs and they could be literally next door. So we would we would only target social and mixed tenure blocks where we have an interest in. Now that excludes those uh, private residents from both the quality that, that we could deliver um, through, you know, Clark Works, project managers, technical ability, all that kind of stuff, as well as the, the, the finance, you know, we can invariably procure things in, a, in a, much, a, a much cheaper way than other people. And I think what I would say is, and I think it's a point that, that Rufus would agree with, uh, local authorities cannot tackle this. This They're not set up to, to tackle large-scale rate, uh, if it's not the right word, they're not set up to, to tackle the challenge that we have across multiple tenures. So they can certainly play a part. But what Rufus is proposing, and I think anyone listening to this should understand that, local authorities can't do up your home. <laughs> they're just not set up to do that, and they can't. Um, and I think that holistic approach, that value for money, 
and, and that mixed tenure, I think they could, the, there is an entity that Rufus is talking about which seems really attractive to me because it could do social and private in a way that's value for money. Uh, and, and one last point, sorry for, for hogging the chat, is that Rufus made a point earlier on. I've, I've been in estates before where, so Renfrewshire, the organisation I work for just now, originally had 40,000 units and I think they sold over 25,000 25, of those to the right to buy. If you go into many of those households, there are people who bought those homes who have very little, um, uh, have very little, fine, you know, they are homeowners come in many of the shapes and forms. Those are not homeowners can afford tens of thousands of pounds worth of work. Invariably, they're elderly. They're in, they're in areas where even the house itself may only be valued at fifty, sixty thousand pounds. So, worthwhile, I think, as as Rufus said earlier on, when we talk about private homes, let's not think everyone stays in a five-bedroom mansion in Knightswood. <laughs> you know, I think that's true because uh, uh, that's the difficulty, isn't it, of splitting things simply into say social housing or able to pay. That it's not it's not that binary, is it? It's far more complex than that. And I think this is where um, the notion of coming from the bottom up neighborhood community approach kind of can help to to jump over some of those or just to 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 break down some of those barriers from the tenure mix that we have in this country which is kind of really crazy um when you think about like we live in in an old victorian building where there are four flats and there's mixed tenure within that and just to be but even starting thinking about well how would we get anywhere with this one building but if you have something that is built from the community up that has Benefits that reach everybody's experience, just people, households, communities, all of that stuff that you've got the will then and the drive and the collective understanding and all those things that actually, frankly, our society isn't built on at the minute and and is being picked apart by media with great glee. You know, it's not I had a conversation with my father in law last night and he's just sort of saying, you know, people are generally really good folk like, you know, communities are are great and it's just you don't get to read any of that in the press you don't get to see any of that you know and and it's not the way it really is on the ground so it's about like reinvesting in the confidence of of communities as well to like trust each other to to be able to build something so I know that's kind of like a high level not very like this is part of the technical solution but it's sort of about reinstating some faith as well in our ability to do it and not wait for government who are fundamentally followers anyway I there lots of points you both of you just made that, that really resonate. I think the um often in the conversations about this space, there's a lot of discussion about the people who own the assets and and forgetting about the, the residents are the ultimate client of this process. They're the people who are going to be put out when the work is done and, and hopefully will benefit when it's completed. Um to that point about mixed tenure, yeah. And also, you know, don't forget commercial. I mean, this the, the, the concept of this model where you're capturing savings works on any building where there is an energy bill payer. Mm. So it could be an office building, it could be a shop, it could be residential, could be privately owned or whatever. So it's it's mixed tenure in in, a, in the broadest sense. Um, the point, uh, going back to what Jeff was saying, uh, saying earlier, I think, yes, there is a growing understanding that simple technocratic domain-focused approaches aren't working, aren't going to work, haven't worked anywhere, and there is an appetite to think about things that are are more holistic. One of the key pushbacks we get is, oh, this is very complicated. Supply chain, how are you going to do it? Don't really have the answer to that, other than this is a really complicated problem and it probably needs a complex holistic solution, unfortunately. Otherwise, we'd be 
we'd already be we wouldn't be having this conversation because it'd all be happening because it'd be easy. Um, but the one argument that really has resonated, particularly when we're talking at more of a political sphere, um, and, and thankfully this is a kind of cross-party piece, so you don't have to get political about it with a small p, is that broadly speaking, if you want to retrofit a house in a deep way, you want to think about um, energy generation, heat source, fabric first, um, maybe doing some stuff in the spaces between houses, the cost broadly is going to be the same wherever you do it. I mean, I, yeah, there's a little bit of maybe there's a labour cost difference between London and Fife, I don't know, but not massively, right? If you see the average house price in London is 600 grand, the average house price in, in the northeast of England is, I think, 160. So as soon as you have a model that is pushing the responsibility to fund that to the homeowner, just forget about the, the difficulties of rental and social housing for a moment. Um, you know, we did a bit of very rough back of the envelope maths that suggested for the average London owner occupier, it would cost about 30 to 40% of the equity in their property, given average loan to values and average house prices and average retrofit costs to do a deep retrofit. In the northeast of England, it would cost just over 100%. Mm. So you have a massive uh, anti-just transition, anti-leveling up, you know, inequality exacerbation problem. And that you know, as soon as you mention that to a, a, a politician of any colour, you know, they're immediately, ah, that's that's not a good thing. We can't, you know, we know we can't do that. And, and I think this point of effectively using the existing energy bill, you'd have to have some modifications about people who are off gas grid, et cetera, et cetera, at the edges, but using the, the existing size of the energy bill as a way to fund this would deliver a much more um, equal sort of financial burden across the country than than pushing it onto people through policy. Duncan, you're muted. So, so, sorry, I was, uh, was mid-flow there. Um, <laughs> uh, no, uh, again, it's, it's fascinating stuff. Um, and I think I think it is about highlighting those co benefits and how you get government to come in at the stage where um, they can they can see and realise a lot of the um, a lot of the positives. However, one thing just when you're talking there about um, I, I, you know I, I know about energy you know energy energy bills. You're saying I was in a property maybe a couple of years ago now, and, and we do a lot of work with tenants, and um, the energy bill was about two hundred pounds a month, and the mortgage was one hundred ninety four quid. And, you know, we, I think one of the things, even though we, we moan and groan about energy bills, quite rightly so, we, we often overlook the fact that certainly where the equity or the price prices um, potentially aren't as, as, as high in, in, in the south of, of England, you're looking at comparable bills just now in a certain segment of, of housing with, uh, with, that of, um, uh, with that of your mortgage, you know, about a couple of hundred quid. That's, you know, that's, that's something we have to, to look at. That's not right, you know. Um, but I, I just come back to the point about energy as a service, or maybe touching on that. I mean, what what we're not suggesting here is that that, that in any way um, all work is subsidised. What we're what we're talking about, or I think what you're what you're saying, Rufus, is that we use the the bill, we take some of that and give it back to the householder as an incentive. But that that can fund the necessary work that has these co benefits. Is is that is that a fair a fair representation of, of what we're looking at as part of the service? Yes, I think how much of the energy bill you have to leave with the so one incentive to sign up to this kind of scheme if it rolls into your 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 neighbourhood is I might get a ten percent 
bill saving or a 20% bill saving. The more more saving you leave with the resident, the less there is to raise finance and the more subsidy you need in the model. So it, 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 there's a there's a trade-off between the kind of social benefit of and economic benefit of putting money in people's pockets versus funding the whole thing in the first place. But yeah, absolutely. And then it's trying to capture at a neighborhood level those co-benefits and using that to bring in other sources of, of funding to be able to pay for it. Yeah, but we, we really, I mean, Sarah and I had this conversation, I think, just the other day, but we have to be talking. I mean, I think you're right, Rufus, retrofit, retrofit, what does it really mean? Uh, and we have to be talking about healthy, warm homes here, as, as, as Jeff said in, in the tech. I mean, that's really what we have to be talking about. If, if, if let's see even that we can make a 5 or 10% reduction on, 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 on that energy bill, if that's viable within the model, but if we can give a product to a resident, to a householder, to a tenant, which is a home that's heated to wow, twenty degrees, and is healthy, and the air quality is good. Surely, you know that that that's a really positive message. In in a safe, livable community, I would finish that sentence. Yeah. Yeah. So, note to all listeners: if anybody has a really great word for that, drop us a note. <laughs> which we've been trying on to find a snappy, snappy title. The well, one I, want to... I would suggest leveling up, but um, but that, that term I presume will go as soon as uh, you know, when, when, when it'll go out the door with Boris. I hope. I'm going know. to make um, you put a pound in the swear jar. Can you go down the line? <laughs> I'm talking yeah. about Boris yeah, or I'm David sorry. Cameron. No, he's not. He's, he's not <laughs> mentioned. Don't do it, Jeff. <laughs> he, he's not mentioned David Cameron for at least two pods now. I know. Or, yeah. Why have to put a pound in the swear jar? <laughs> I brought him up. Um, yeah, there you go. No, I would look. I was going to say was that um community for me is, is one of those trigger words and it's a terrible thing to, to, to admit that it gives me a sense that there's going to be a worthy but dull discussion that that that, uh, that uh, ultimately uh, you know you, you it's these the talking shops where where you know nothing's going to be achieved because because people have been so badly disenfranchised um and you know they don't they haven't had the power but what you're talking about here um and this is one of the reasons why you have to hope that that politically they might be interested in it, is empowering people. You know, you bring them in, you you get them to participate. You don't, as you say, send a crack team. And although the my um, part of me that has autocratic sort of despotic tendencies likes the idea of sending people in with you know from helicopters uh, with with machine guns and forcing them to retrofit their buildings <laughs> at gunpoint. You know, um, but no, it's you're, you're you're empowering people. You're involving them in the decision making, and and you know. It has to also have the potential, this kind of thing, of um, of making people generally feel less uh, disenfranchised uh, with politics, showing them, you know, the the, the benefits that that uh, that could directly, uh, on many levels, uh, accrue for them, for their families, their friends, and for their community. And I think that that's such a powerful thing. It's a really inspiring idea to think in these terms um, and and uh, and to involve people. So I'm, you know. I'm very excited about what you're saying. You know? I, th- I think uh, uh, just the last thing I think I want to say is I've been thinking about this a lot and we've lots of people have been talking about how complicated retrofit is and how difficult it is and how much it puts people out and all that language and how we haven't got the the skills to deliver it. And I don't know if I buy that actually. Like I think that right now at this minute we, we don't because we don't have sort of big scale strategies that people are committed to and rolling out but the skills are there that just needs like pivoting tweaking investment like the things that we've been talking about we're not that far away from being able to do this and I think that's a useful part of the story is like but finding the examples of where it's working or 
or empowering the people who are building and doing things. Um, and and sorry, my kids have just come to the window and they're outside waving and they've totally thrown me off my point. But I just think to say, like, I don't think we should get um, generally as an industry to like, dis- like, as you said, Jeff, disenfranchised about this idea that it's so complex. And we can't do it. It is close. And it's it's about bringing all these thoughts and these minds and these ideas together and like and then just running with it, like and having the confidence that we can do those things and it's like you know you mentioned Jeff um, uh, and Duncan that this podcast was kind of off the back of COP and the the big takeaway from COP for so many people seems to be look we just have to do this as bottom-up grassroots organizations people who are who know and not wait for the big messages from on high they're not coming and we you know the power and the change happens here happens with people and 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 that is what's happening so let's just get, get on and do that like hold the other hold the cowboys to I'm going to say cowboys I'm talking expressly about government um hold them to account but like let's just continue on because there's a lot of really good stuff and a lot of really great ideas out there I think there's a really strong narrative you can build about and, and I always hesitate around the words because so many words have a bit like community have sort of you know regeneration has some negative connotations as well but there's a great narrative I think you can build about reinvesting in place um and okay, buildings is part of that, and it's a big chunk of it from a sort of capital cost perspective, but it's just one part of it. And it's not necessarily the bit that's going to have the biggest resonance with the people who live there. So there's a great narrative around that. I think there is genuinely a huge and, and very genuine appetite from things like the pension fund industry and the insurance industry to put money to work in this space and a frustration that they can't. We 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 ran a workshop with a with most of the largest UK asset managers, legal in general, one of the biggest, went on record and said, we will absolutely fund this if you get this set up. So the, the willingness to put the money in, I mean, you know, that's going to require the right risk profile, et cetera, et cetera. But the willingness to put the money in is there. I really strongly feel that the the right partner to deliver this is local government. You need local government to work in partnership with communities to deliver it. And they need the funding. And that's the bit we've got to try and chip out of, of central government. And to be fair, to give give the conversations we're having with central government, there is an appetite to do that and to test these, these approaches. Um, I'm feeling, feeling fairly confident that we will get something off the ground next year. And I know there's a bunch of authorities that, not, not because of what we've said, they were already been thinking about this kind of model and it's kind of meshing with what we're talking about. I think there are projects that will that will happen. And if you can prove it, I get come back the, your point about supply chain, I think is a really important one. It's one something we get pushed back to is like, even if you get this working, the supply chain won't work. And maybe I'm being too simplistic here. I probably am. But when you think about things like the Green Deal and you know, those sort of retrofit tile or heat pump type programs, they are nationally diffuse. And if you think about the supply chain, it's a it's a firm of fitters that operate in Basingstoke or wherever, and they need a locally strong demand signal for them to send their people off to training college to learn new stuff, to buy new kit in, you know, and and do that transformation. If I was running a gas boiler fitting firm, I'd be terrified. You know, where are we going to be in 15 years' time? There is a transition you've got to manage, but you need that strong and consistent demand signal locally. And this kind of local program will create that. You know there are a thousand homes that are going to be um, worked on over the next three years in this specific neighbourhood, and if it works, you know that the next street and the next street and the next street will work, and you're creating 
people talk about a renovation wave, but you're actually creating that rea in reality in local streets. And, and I think, will we inevitably fall into supply chain issues? A hundred percent, of course. If this is successful and the demand is there, it will outstrip the supply chain. There won't be enough qualified people. There won't be enough supply chain of kit. But that strong signal pulling it will create the investment required to ultimately solve that problem. And that's where you get the employment and the, the, all the economic benefits that flow. And it's all happening next year, you say, Rufus. I'm, I'm so here for this. I'm not, not, not saying it's going to be completed next year. I think it's going to take a step forward next year. It has to, right? I mean, yeah, we're running out of time. Yeah, it does absolutely. I think that's so critical. I think markets will respond to to demand, but you're absolutely right. They need that the markets need a strong signal that that, that that things are changing and that there's requirements. So no, I totally agree with that. Sorry, Sarah, I interrupted you. No, I was just thinking that it's such a great way to end where we're yeah. all like coming away. Like I'm feeling really enthusiastic and really excited about this. And I've got yeah. thanks very much, actually, um, Rufus, because you know we've spoken before but i've got a better understanding again having like you know talked it through in these in these contexts so it's really clear and really yeah really exciting looking forward to following how it goes it is it's really exciting well hopefully Ruth, we, can, we can get you back on when you um when you when you you've you got know. your pilot on yeah. the go <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And we're, once we go off here, we're going to ask you who it is. Yeah. <laughs> There's lots of them. As a, as a, this is a really, really a, a sophisticated Ponzi scheme, you know. But uh, <laughs> uh, next time we'll be a Cook Report style piece uh, chasing you, you know. <laughs> so, well, well, listen, I'll just wrap up. It's been really great, Rufus. The conversation we have with you is always really stimulating. And I think that. We, we need people like you and organisations like yours looking at the bigger picture because we can talk. We You know, guys like me will talk a good game about how many bricks you need and how you need to put those bricks in a building. But the reality is the scale we're talking about, we need financial investment, I think, and we need we need a really big strategic plan about how we do that. So it sounds fantastic. So good luck. Thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity to speak. And I, 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 I'd, I'd follow that back and say, you know, this isn't a finance problem and it's mm. not a technical problem and it's not a community engagement problem. It's all of those things wrapped up and you need you know, where this gets solved is bringing people with diverse, yeah, you know, viewpoints and putting them together and, and collaborating to make it work. Cause it's, it's all of those problems and others all, all wrapped together. No, totally. Well, listen, Rufus, thank you so much. And uh, Jeff did ask me to say Merry Christmas to everyone who's listening out there. So, and I said, well, I'm not, not comfortable with that. But oh, I'll come on. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs> I thought we were going to get a chance to do this Graham Norton show style thing about, uh, you know, because this is going out. Uh, people are watching or listening to this after <laughs> the 28th. And they're like, you know, how was your Christmas, Rufus? Yeah. Oh, it was really good. <laughs> yeah, I can't make my brain operate quite that far ahead on a day-to-day -day basis right now. <laughs> cool. Well, listen again, Rufus. Thanks so much, and hopefully we'll talk to you in the new year. It's brilliant. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.